0: Well, if you have your Bible make your way back to the gospel of Mark Mark chapter 20 or Mark chapter 10 down verse 23. Uh, there is a study guide on the back of your prayer sheet so uh, give you an opportunity to take notes and follow along and maybe you'll hear something that the Holy Spirit will say to you and you'll be able to uh, study it and go into more detail on your own throughout the week. Now I've had the privilege of living in different uh, areas of the country and, a lot of times when you move to a new area, they have different kinds of expressions and things that may not make sense to you, or sometimes they sound a little funny uh, to you from, uh, from a stranger's point of view. I remember in New Hampshire, for the very first time, I was in a restaurant, and a waitress asked me if I was all set, and uh, what that meant to me was that, uh, or do you need anything? I mean, that was the way I interpreted that. And I said, yeah, I'm all set. And, and I still had half a plate of food. And she reached down and started taking my food away from me. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. She said, well, you said you were all set. And I said, well, I, I meant I don't need any more to drink at the moment. I wasn't finished with my food. And so I had to learn quickly about what all set means. Uh, there was uh, another phrase that I thought was rather interesting. They use the term wicked all the time. As in, this is my pasta. He's a wicked nice guy. I think that's a compliment. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he meant it as a compliment. Uh, this is my pasta. He's a wicked nice guy. Uh, I like that. Um, in, New, in Texas, for example, we use the term fixin' all the time. As in, I'm fixing to go to the store. Do you need me to pick up anything for you? Uh, we say that all the time. In Texas, everybody knows that a Texas stop sign uh, is referring to Dairy Queen, okay, and uh, because a lot of those little towns, uh, the only thing there is a Texas stop sign. And when you see it, that means you stop and get you some refreshments. That's why we call Dairy Queen a Texas stop sign, because that's the only thing there. Uh, in Texas, they'll say things like, "all uh, get out, as in that pie is as good as all will get out. It means something that is infinitely good. Um, In Maryland, uh, their big claim to fame is there, the birthplace of our National Anthem, written by Francis Scott Key on the decks of a British ship watching the bombardment of the British in the War of 1812 of Fort uh, McHenry. And it matters not the occasion uh, or the location. I don't care where they are. People from Maryland, when they are singing the National Anthem, when they get to that, uh, that phrase... Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave? They always shout, Oh, say, do you see? And uh, that means that there are O's fans through and through, regardless of whether or not they're in last place like they are today. Um, Depending on where you live, you'll call a carbonated drink a soda, or sometimes they'll call it pop. If you live in the South, it's always Coke, because Coca-Cola is king. We don't say, do you want a pop, or do you want a soda pop? They'll say, um, you know, I want a Coke. Um, and have you noticed that Southerners speak in pictures? Um, they'll say things like, that frosts my biscuits. That means they're angry at something, right? Um, they'll say things like, he's a few fries short of a Happy Meal, uh, meaning that he's not, you know, real bright. And uh, and then they'll say things that like, um, that was so good, it'll make you slap your mama. Now... I'm from the South, and I don't even understand what that means. I don't understand why you would be possessed to slap your mama if she made you a good meal. To me, that makes no sense whatsoever, and I grew up down there. And and so these unusual sayings uh, can be kind of interesting. And in our study today, Jesus makes a couple of unusual statements that caused his disciples to be astonished uh, when it comes to uh, entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, last week we talked about the uh, Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler and uh, how he asked Jesus, what does it take for me to inherit eternal life? And we talked last week about the risks of salvation, and today is kind of a second part of last week's sermon. We're calling this, though, the rewards of salvation, and, uh, and Jesus is going to uh, make two astonishing, or our text is going to make two astonishing declarations that highlight Uh, the rewards of salvation. First of all, I want you to notice the astonishing reality of salvation. The astonishing reality of salvation. So immediately after uh, we see in verse 22 where this rich young ruler walks away because he was sad at Jesus' word that he had to sell everything he had to follow him, to take up his cross and follow Jesus, and he he would have treasure in heaven. Verse 22 tells us that he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And as soon as that man walked off, Jesus looked around at his disciples in verse 23 and he made an astonishing statement to them. He said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? No doubt our Lord looked and saw the, the, the astonishment described in verse 24 uh, at, the, at, the, at his saying. And so Jesus answered them again and said, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And, and they were greatly astonished again. Here's that word again. Three times there were said that they were astonished, uh, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. The occasion of this rich young ruler gives Jesus the opportunity to to dialogue with his disciples and have a discussion with them about entrance into the kingdom of God. And uh, the dominant Jewish view was that riches were a sign of God's divine blessing and, and that you were in a right relationship with him if God ble- had blessed you uh, with financial wealth. This was the idea that uh, that we see in the book of Job where uh, where God holds up to Satan as an example. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And Job says, well, the only reason that Job... Uh, follows you and is righteous towards you is because you have blessed him tremendously. And of course, we know that God wanted to put Job to the test and, and, uh, wanted people to understand, and even Job's friends thought the reason that he'd lost all of his wealth was that he had done something wrong. And, and uh, and so there's this idea that if you've been blessed financially, that you're in a right relationship with God. And, and so Jesus. Uh, You you have to understand the disciples' astonishment at what Jesus has to say here in verse 24. And he answers them again. And and, uh, in in some of your Bibles, you might see a little footnote or a little number one or something there where he says, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. That's present in the New King James. But the ESV version, for example, says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, that phrase, those who trust in riches, is not in, in the majority of the manuscripts. But in context, it's true. I mean, Jesus is using that statement, the people who trust in riches, but, but the reality is it is hard to get into heaven. Uh, in and of ourselves, we have nothing to offer. And so Jesus illustrates this and hammers his point home to make sure that we don't misunderstand what he's saying. And verse 25 is the most unusual statement. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, lots of people have tried to figure out what this actually means. Uh, in verse number 25, it's, is Jesus talking, uh, literally about a camel? Some people say, well, uh, there's, uh, the Greek word rope, uh, is similar to the Greek word camel. They're only off by, uh, by one letter. And so maybe Jesus meant to say it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle. Well, have you ever tried to put a rope through the eye of a needle? It uh, doesn't make any sense. I mean, it, it doesn't work, right? And, uh, and then people said, well, there was on the eastern side of, of, of Jerusalem a small gate uh, that was called the Eye of the Needle, and camels would come up to that gate, and they'd have great difficulty getting down on their knees to crawl through the gate. No, there's not really a gate there that we can find evidence of. Jesus, in verse 25, says, literally says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to go to heaven. That's what he meant. Don't read into it. He's talking about a literal camel and a literal needle. That you can't make one pass through the other. That is the reality of our salvation experience. You see, because in and of ourselves, we cannot... Uh, a camel was the largest uh, Palestinian animal and a needle opening was one of the smallest openings and so Jesus was not stuttering and his disciples were astonished by this in verse 26 and they're saying uh, who then can be saved I mean they're looking at this rich young ruler and they're thinking man that guy would be a great addition to our team I mean maybe we could put him in charge of the finances and not Judas I mean, maybe that's what they were thinking. They were judging a book by its cover. Uh, Remember what the Bible says, though, that man looks at the outward appearance, and yet what? God looks at the heart. And so Jesus is trying to illustrate absurdity The absurdity that we as humans can somehow save ourselves if we're trusting in anything. This is a continuation uh, of, of his discussion with the disciples back in chapter 9 verse 36 when they were arguing about who's the greatest. And when Jesus took a little child up in his arms and says... Uh, that you have to become like a little child to enter the kingdom of God, that you should not uh, cause one of these little ones to stumble. Down in verse number 15 uh, of this same chapter, he says you have to receive uh, the kingdom of God like a little child. Literally what Jesus is trying to help all of us understand, the disciples and all of us today, is that our salvation is impossible without God doing something miraculous on our behalf. For us to be able to save ourselves, it would be easier to shove a camel's ginormous body through the little opening of a needle. Now, you know, the older you get, have you noticed how hard it is to thread a needle? I mean, I've tried to do this when I've had to sew back on a button and my mom or my wife uh, or one of my girls wasn't around to help me and I was in a desperate spot and I'm taking one of those portable little sewing kits. And if you notice, those little portable sewing kits have the smallest openings ever. I mean, I don't know what they were smoking in the factory that day. They made them all on a Friday, I guess. Because you're standing there, you don't have a magnifying glass and your arms aren't long enough and, and you're trying to thread that thing in there. It's hard enough to get a piece of thread through there, let alone a camel. And, and yet Jesus wants us to understand that our entrance into the kingdom of God would be like trying to take a camel and shove it through the opening of a needle to get into heaven. What if God said the standard to get into heaven is that all of you have to crawl through the eye of a needle to get there? Could you do it? No. There's no way. And so the point that Jesus is making is that we have no ability to rescue ourselves. We can't do anything about our sin problem. We can't accumulate enough wealth and enough uh, goodness for us to be able to get saved. We have to have someone rescue us. As I was thinking about this passage of scripture, I was drawn back to a time when I was probably nineteen or twenty years old, and uh, it was when Cheryl and I were dating, and we had the occasion to go to South Padre Island, which was just you know sixty miles or so from where we lived at that time in McAllen. And, and uh, Cheryl and I, and her youngest brother Brian, uh, went to the beach that day, and and uh, everything was going great. We were having a good time in the in the Gulf Coast, and and uh, we were out swimming, and uh, I got caught up in, in one of those riptides down there. And uh, I could sense that I was being carried out to sea. And Brian and I were trying to get out to a sandbar. And uh, he kept saying, oh, it's just a little bit farther. You'll get out to the sandbar. Well, it was high tide, and so the sandbar was nowhere to be found. And, and then I find myself in this riptide, and, and I realized that that I was sinking, and I began to panic. And I, and I realized very quickly because I'm not a strong swimmer at all, and uh, I really don't know how to float very well. I mean, it's only in the last year or so that I've learned how to float, and uh, and I was going down. I mean, I've got lead in my bucket. You know what I mean? And uh, and I was floundering and I was beginning to panic. And the more I panicked, the harder it was to swim. And, and Brian was a junior in high school at that particular time, and and I hollered out, Brian, I'm not going to make it. And he said, Oh, come on, it's not that far. And he kept swimming. And he was getting farther away from me. And I hollered, Brian, I'm seriously in trouble here. I need your help. And he turned around and looked at me. And I guess he saw the stress in my face and the fear in my eyes. And 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 that six-foot, two-inch, you know, 240-pound, you know, linebacker came swimming back out to me. And I'll remember the sense of relief I felt when he put that big old powerful arm around me and just began with one hand to swim back to shore and drag me back to safety and I got back on the shore and I kissed the sand because I was afraid I was going to die that day and not much has scared me in my lifetime but that day I was scared and I knew the Lord Jesus as my savior I was a believer I was a follower of Christ but I was not ready to die that day in the sand and I had to cry out to Brian to rescue me and I remember the awe and wonder that I had of the power and strength that that this high school junior had to to rescue me and to pull us both back out of that riptide into into safety into shore. You see, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. We have to enter the kingdom of God by relying on somebody outside of us. In this case, it's Almighty God to rescue us from our sin. You recall Peter's experience in Matthew chapter 14 where the disciples were trying to row across the lake late at night and Jesus had been up in the mountain and he was praying and he looks down and sees that they're struggling with difficulty and he begins to walk to them on the water and of course Peter sees them coming and he says, it's the Lord. And he says, Lord, if that's you, they thought was a ghost. He says, "Lord, if that's you, allow me to come walking to you on the water." And, and to Peter's amazement, Jesus says, "Come on, Pete, let's go." And Peter gets out and he begins to walk on the water. But then he looks down and he sees the waves, and he prays one of the greatest prayers ever prayed in Matthew fourteen thirty: "Lord, save me." And Jesus reached out his hand and saved him. You see, human logic and worldly wisdom and Satan would have us to be convinced that somehow we can earn God's favor by doing good deeds and doing good works and going to church and being a good person and that we can get into heaven if we just do enough good works. And it's like this balance scale that we use for our VBS offering that if the good works outweigh the bad works when we get to the end of our lives, God has got to let us into heaven. And that lie has been told and repeated so many times that people actually believe it to be true. And yet what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is the astonishing reality of salvation is that you cannot save yourself. You have to have God do this for you. The scripture teaches us that all of our righteousness is as a filthy rag according to Isaiah 64.6 and there is none righteous, no not one in uh, Romans 3 verse 10. And so the question is, have you trusted in Jesus Christ by faith alone? Are you trusting in Jesus plus something else? Are are you treating Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? Or are you treating him as some kind of celestial good luck charm that you rub in your pocket when you get into a bind and you begin to cry out to him and you say, I need your help, good luck charm Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus plus something else? Jesus plus being a church member, Jesus plus being baptized, Jesus plus uh, doing good deeds and giving to the poor. You see, Jesus plus anything else equals eternal damnation. But Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ alone and in his provision alone is how we have entrance into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is making a pointed pointed statement here to remind us that salvation, apart from the grace and the mercy and the power of God, is an absolute impossibility. You should not gloss over this, and you should not suffer uh, or soften the meaning of what Jesus has to say. And that's why the disciples were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who can be saved? I mean, if that guy can't be saved... How in the world are we going to get saved? And then Jesus makes the statement. He said, but with men, salvation, entrance into the kingdom of God is impossible. But with God, he has made it possible through a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do I become a Christian? That's why I say here all the time that becoming a Christian is as simple as ABC. You have to admit that you're a sinner. Just agree with God that you fall short of his standard of perfection. You have to admit that you have a need. I had to admit that day in South Texas that I was going to drown. I, let me tell you something. My ego washed out to the to, to shore with me. I was in pretty good shape. I was young. I was I was an athlete too. But I had way more than I could handle. And I had to cry out to Brian to save me. You have to be desperate enough to be saved. You have to be willing to humble yourselves and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You have to ask Him to forgive you. You can't be trusting in being a good person or thinking that God got a good deal when He got you. And so the A of the ABCs is simply to admit that you're a sinner. The B is that you would believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, that He is the Son of God. That he gave his life on a cross and that he, uh, he paid for your sin to be paid. And, and, and when he cried out, it was finished, he meant that he paid the price for all of your sin. Every sin that you'd ever commit. And then the see of the ABCs is simply to confess him as your Lord and Savior. Say, Lord, whatever you did on that cross, would you take it and apply it to my life? And instantly, when we have the courage to admit our need, believe in Jesus Christ by faith and ask Him to forgive us, instantly He forgives us and adopts us into His family. That's why we gather and worship today. Because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Not because we're good people, but because of the grace of God. That's what I love uh, the, the, we, and, and if you are a believer you've already trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior I, I want you to pause this morning and thank God for the miracle of your salvation do you realize that your salvation cost Jesus his life do you realize that he gave his life so you wouldn't have to give your life The miracle of your salvation is something that we ought to thank God for. It's like the words that Charles Gabriel penned years ago when he wrote, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my soul shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Do you realize what your salvation costs, folks? Would you stop and just thank God for the marvel of salvation and the power of God at work to give you eternal life in heaven? It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for you to get yourself to heaven on your own good works and good personality or anything else good that you have. Well, the astonishing declaration of the reality of salvation, but then we need to see the second declaration, the astonishing rewards of salvation. Notice the astonishing rewards of salvation in verse 28. Don't you love the Apostle Peter? He says, Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and we followed you. Lord, look at us. Peter's asking for affirmation. He's saying, hey, don't you remember that day years, a few years ago, Lord, when you came walking by the Sea of Galilee and you saw us out there and we were working on our nets and we were fishing and, and you said to us, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Do you remember how we threw down our nets and we jumped out of the boat and we left our livelihood and we began to follow you? You remember that, Lord? Don't you love Peter? I mean, that's the way we'd be, Right? God, don't you remember the day that we dropped it all, and 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 when we began to follow you? What's in it for us, God? I mean, that's what He's really saying, isn't it? I mean, Lord, we left everything. What what are you going to do for us? What what what? I mean, it's like a little kid in the candy store. What am I going to get? Oh, goody! It's my birthday. What do I get? And then Jesus looks at him and says. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels. Notice that, because you can't just leave everything behind and go on some kind of pilgrimage in general, drop your job and go on a cross-country motorcycle ride like I read about a guy this past week who has, has done and just gave up everything and and uh, for a good cause, but it's not going to grant him entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It's not going to result in eternal rewards. But Jesus says if you leave everything behind for my sake in the Gospels, you'll receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And with persecutions in this age and to come, you'll have eternal life. The astonishing rewards of salvation. You see, in the business world, they talk about risk and reward. Businesses are constantly making their decisions based on what it's going to cost and whether or not the risk and the reward go hand in hand. The rich young ruler made a risk assessment. He looked at his wealth, and he looked at all of the possessions that he had inherited and everything that he had accumulated. And when Jesus said, I want you to sell all of that and give it away, Uh, he He saw there was great risk to that. You're a carpenter. You have nothing. You're a teacher. Yeah, you're a pretty good teacher, but leave everything that I've worked so hard for. Leave everything that's been given to me. Leave everything behind. And he walked away from that because in his mind, the reward was not worth the risk of losing all of his wealth and his income. It was a stumbling block to him, and it was the only reason why Jesus Christ asked him to give it away and and to walk away from it. I wonder if it was that cross that Jesus talked about in verse 21. Take up your cross and follow me, and I'll give you everything in the kingdom of heaven. And he looked at that and said, this is stupid, I'm not doing that. And he walked away from Jesus because he had lots of possessions. He traded his eternal future over his bank account. And so Jesus responds that people who let set everything aside, their homes, their family, their livelihood, it, it was a scandalous call that Jesus Christ makes to, to call Him to be their priority. And then He mentions the word persecutions here. We always think in terms of, of the blessings that we'll get when we follow Jesus Christ. What about the persecutions that you're going to get? Do we as believers today and The 21st century in 2017, do we view persecutions for the the sake of Jesus Christ's name and the sake of the Gospels as a blessing? I mean, Jesus listed it as a blessing, didn't he? He said, I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you all the wealth of the kingdom of God. And I'm also going to give you the blessing to be persecuted for my sake and the sake of the Gospels. Do we really view persecution as a blessing from God? I don't know that it's on on this side of persecution that it's easy for us to do that and and we have to count the cost and we have to understand that following Jesus comes with a high price but I'm amazed in Acts chapter 5 verse 41 when the disciples who were standing here in in Mark chapter 10 wondering what their reward is going to be like how their tune changed when they saw the risen Savior and they saw the nail prints in his hands and they saw the scar in his side and they saw him as the risen Savior. And so in Acts chapter 5, they're being persecuted and they're being threatened in the name of Jesus Christ and they're saying you're not allowed to preach this name anymore and they threatened them and the Bible makes the point to say that the disciples left rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. Would you be willing to suffer for Jesus? And I'm not talking about, you know, in the workplace. I'm talking about where somebody puts a gun to your head and says, unless you renounce Jesus, I'm going to blow your brains out. I'd say, well, I'm getting promoted to heaven today. And by the grace of God, that's exactly what you would say too. Because Jesus wants us to know that everything that we have, when we risk it all for Him, we're going to suffer, but it's going to be worth it in the end. And Jesus makes that promise to us here. And, and so you say, well, I'm looking at following Jesus Christ, and, and I've given up everything, and I've lost my family, and my family doesn't understand. They think I'm some kind of religious nutcase, and, and they're, they, they don't like me being a fanatic for Jesus. Is it worth it? I... Can, can I count on him? And he says, yes. You can count on me to replace all of that for you. I'm going to multiply it back to you like I did the five loaves and the two fish. I'm going to multiply back those seeds of faith to you like the parable of the sower. And I'm going to increase that. And I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to bless you tremendously. And, and here he says in verse 31, But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What does he mean by that? You see, this guy back in verse number 22, he was first in society. He was a rich, young ruler. He was at the head of the line. When people saw him coming, they said, here, we'll we'll let you get in front of us. I mean, it would be like the president showing up at Perkins this afternoon. Do you think he'd get a priority seat? Do you think he'd get a private booth back in the corner and we'd all go, yeah, sure, president, you go. That's the way this guy was. And yet, Jesus says, if you're at the end of the line, in my economy, in the kingdom of God, someday you'll be first in line. We say, but that doesn't make any sense. You see, what Jesus is trying to get us and these disciples to understand is the radical difference in the kingdom of God and in God's economy. The people that we think should be at the front of the line are actually people who should be at the back of the line. And the people who are at the back of the line should be at the front of the line. And Jesus says, that's okay because I'm going to be the one who takes, who keeps score. I'm going to bless you a hundredfold for everything that you've left behind. I think about my mom and dad and how, how long... Our family has been separated with my sister being a missionary in Korea and me ministering in the Northeast and and far away from my my family and all the family get-togethers that people take for granted. We don't get to enjoy. The fact that our kids are serving the Lord in different places today, they're spread out all over the country. We don't get to have birthdays and see grandkids growing up, but I think God's going to have a way of fixing all that when we get to heaven. I think that God's going to take care of that and He's going to allow us to, to have the opportunity to go back and revisit those five-year-old birthdays that we missed. I think God's going to make up for those Christmas times that, that we weren't able to be together. Why? Because God is the God who promises astonishing rewards as a result of our fellowship of Him. You know, I think one of the most amazing characters in all of Scripture is the Apostle Paul. Paul was a unique person that God crafted to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And he was the the first and the greatest and most effective missionary for the kingdom of God. But Paul suffered tremendously because of his walk with Christ. In 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11, actually, the Apostle Paul kind of gives us some insight. And as a matter of fact, with Paul's calling uh, to gospel ministry, uh, God even told Ananias that uh, he was going that he had to show Paul what great things he was going to suffer for his sake and Acts chapter 9, verse 16. And the Apostle Paul kind of pulls back the curtains uh, for the Corinthian believers and he kind of talks about the different things that he suffered in his ministry. In, in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he says, In stripes I've been uh, above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. In other words, five times in Paul's life he was beaten 39 times. Can you imagine having someone take a rod and whip you ten times? And Paul said, that happened to me five times where they gave me 39 lashes. I mean, immense suffering. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked wrecked a night and a day he has spent in the deep in journeys often in perils of waters and perils of robbers and perils of my own countrymen and perils of the Gentiles and perils in the city and perils in the wilderness and perils in the sea and perils among false brethren in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often hunger and thirst fastings and cold and nakedness and besides all of that what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for all of the churches do you see what Paul was doing I mean, think about Paul's status before he came to know Christ. He lost everything. He was a Pharisee. He was a prominent leader in the religious community. And yet when he met Jesus, he said, I'm leaving all of that behind and I'm going to follow you. And his followership of Jesus resulted in tremendous suffering. He lost his family and everything he had. But when you read Paul's letters through the New Testament, do you see the spiritual family that God gave him? Paul is living proof of Jesus' promise here that you're going to receive a hundredfold in friends and family and brothers and sisters. Isn't that what we refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? And as we have family forsake us and as we have family walk away from us because of our radical commitment to Christ, and yet God replaces them with spiritual family. That's why our church relationships are so important. Why, being a part of a local body of, of believers who are committed to the fellowship of Jesus Christ is such an immense blessing. Do you realize that in the persecuted churches today that, uh, that many believers have to get up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to go to worship under cover of darkness and to walk miles and miles and miles with no flashlights and none of that kind of uh, communication unless people find out what they're doing? just so they can be with their brothers and sisters and worship the Lord Jesus? You think about that. It's hard enough to get people to come to church on Sunday morning with an alarm clock and air conditioning here in the United States. And yet Jesus promises that I'm going to multiply that back. And so Paul had all this suffering, but yet in Philippians 4.11, what did he say? He said that he's found that whatever state he's in, he's learned to be content. He's learned to have a lot or have a little. To suffer need. And isn't that amazing? Because then he says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. And then down in verse 32 of Romans 8, he said, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8.37 You see, in Paul's mind, everything was worth it. Everything Paul lost, it didn't matter because God was going to multiply it back to him. And the point that Jesus makes for us is the astonishing reality and the astonishing rewards of salvation is that God is going to multiply back to us and reward us tremendously with everything that we've given up for him. And so what are we to do? You should follow Jesus and walk with him daily wherever he leads you. Give God a blank check with your life. Let God cash it however He wants to. You say, well, that's kind of scary. Maybe God would call me into the ministry. (gasps) Maybe God would call me in my retired years to go on mission for Him and become a volunteer missionary. I've got financial support because of my retirement. And the International Mission Board has a place where senior adults can go and minister on the foreign mission field or the North American Mission Board has volunteers. There were some great volunteers who were retired people who came up there to be a blessing and encouragement in northern New England to church planters. You remember those people that came to our town, Cheryl? Showed up and called us, asked us to go to lunch with them and just wanted to encourage and be a blessing to us. Why couldn't you do that? You get to see some great countryside in the process. (laughs) It's like being on perpetual vacation serving God imagine that Paul said everything that I've given up it's worth it let God cash the check that you would write to him and let God keep the score that brings us to our God encounter this morning and it's simply this your salvation is utterly and completely dependent on the power grace of God, and grace of God and he promises great rewards for those who accept it by faith Maybe you're sitting there like Peter and you're going, don't you remember, God, all the stuff I've done for you? And God's promise to you is, you let me keep score. Your salvation comes by my power. It comes by my grace. And you follow me faithfully all your life. I promise I'll give you great reward if you accept it by faith. I love what First Corinthians two nine says. Uh, I, well, let me get to our Monday morning challenge here. I will follow Jesus Christ daily by faith as a faithful servant and will trust Jesus to supply for me and reward me as he sees fit. You see, we can we can trust God with our future. We can trust Jesus Christ to supply all of our needs and reward us appropriately. That's what this rich young ruler was struggling with. He did not trust Jesus to reward him. He He didn't trust Jesus to to cash the check that he was given and yet the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians two nine, but as it is written I has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him yes there is great risk in salvation but I'm here to tell you based on the promise of Jesus Christ himself there is great reward in salvation when you follow him so how do we know it will be worth it I mean, how do we really know it'll be worth it in the end? Will we ever have buyer's remorse? Will we get to the end of our life and think that somehow it was a mistake? Will we get there at the end and say, I made a huge mistake following Jesus Christ? Well, I don't think so. You see, the Apostle Paul's story doesn't end with what i talked about with the sufferings because Paul is writing to his young protege in the faith in Timothy, uh, his son in the faith, Timothy, a man that he won to the Lord, he invested in. He, uh, God called Timothy to be a pastor and Paul is about to be executed. He's in a Roman dungeon in literally just a few days he was going to be executed by the executioner's sword and this is what he says, that Paul have buyer's remorse 2 Timothy 4 verse 6 for I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge will give to me on that day and not to me only but to all who have loved his appearing you say, well, I don't know if I could face an execution or sword like that. Oh, yeah, you could. Because God's grace is going to come alongside you in that. He'd give you the grace to face that. His grace would be sufficient for you, but there was no hint that Paul had made a mistake. He said, my life is ready to be poured out as a drink offering. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I can't wait to see what God has. He's got a crown of righteousness waiting for me. And he's a righteous judge. He's going to give it on that day. But not just to me, but all who have loved his appearing. In just a few short days, the Apostle Paul would lose his life at the hands of an executioner's sword under the reign of Nero in AD 65. But do you know that the Apostle Paul has been in the presence of our Savior for the last 2,000 years? Do you think Paul would say to you today, oh, don't follow Jesus. It's a big mistake. Are you kidding me? He'd say, what are y'all doing? Following Jesus is worth it. It is so worth it. Will you trust Jesus Christ to keep score? And make up the difference for you. It will be worth it when we see him face to face. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you pray with me today? Father in heaven, we're thankful for today. Lord, we're thankful for the rewards of salvation. The promise that not only in this life, but in the life to come, we will have immense blessing from your hand. Lord, we'll also face persecution Lord, when those seasons of persecution come, when we speak your name at the water cooler at our workplace, when we take a stand for what's right and what's wrong, and and we stand and, and we proclaim the truth of God and people abuse us for that and, and uh, persecute us for that, Lord, would you give us grace in those days? Would we be like the disciples to count it worthy to suffer shame for your name? Lord, I thank you for the promise that we have that that you bless us, not just with material blessings, but you give us, according to Ephesians chapter 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, Paul's argument was very simple because he said if, if, if God gave us the very best he had in his son, he's going to give us everything else. Father, help us to cling to your promises today. Lord, maybe there's people here today who don't know you as Savior and they've never trusted in you by faith alone. They've been trusting in being a good person or having their name on a church roll. But, Lord, they've never repented of their sins and they've never humbled themselves and come to you by faith and said, Lord Jesus, would you save me? Would you be merciful to me, a sinner? They might have just walked an aisle and gave their hand to the preacher and he prayed over them and, and yet their life has never been transformed because they never repented. Father, would you cause people to repent today? And Lord, for those of us who know you as Savior, would you renew our commitment to you or, and would you restore to us the fervor of our salvation, the joy that we once had when we first gave our lives to you? Lord, help us to pick up the torch and begin to walk with you again by faith each and every day. Help us as a church to walk by faith into the future. Lord, we've had a great past, but Lord, help this church and their future to walk with you by faith. No matter what, Lord, would we all give you a blank check with our lives today. Lord, would you bless this message and would you stir it in our hearts and cause us to examine our walks with Christ. And Lord, we look forward to seeing what you'll do through us as we're faithfully walking with you. In Jesus' name, amen.